Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm the Market Fox editor for i3. Today I'm in sunny Venice, Florida at the Ned Davis Research Headquarters. And I've got a real treat for our listeners today. I'm sitting down with three of the firm's senior research analysts. I have Tim Hayes, who's the global strategist. He's a chief global strategist. I have Ed Clissold, who's the Chief U.S. Strategist, and Joe Kalish, who's the Chief Global Macro Strategist. So I'm, I've been told I'm very privileged to get these guys all into one room at the same time. So we're going to talk all things uh, multi-asset strategy, tactical asset allocation, views on the market. A question that we usually ask our guests early on in a podcast, I'm going to throw it open to whoever wants to go first. What are some lessons that you've learned the hard way over your careers? The hard way, well, I think a lesson maybe, I'll just start with, with one, which is pretty basic, um, but it's, it's, a, it's pretty at the core of NDR, which is don't fight the tape. And um, that's why you know, our approach is to make sure at least half of our emphasis is on what's going on um, you know, in the market underneath the surface, the breadth, participation. And, you know, when you start to get away from that, that's when you start to make mistakes. So, I mean, I think that's it's, it's a basic lesson, but it's one I learned early on. And I think it's, it's really something that's important to keep in mind. I think, Joe, you were going to add something there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me, it, it's, it's the psychological um, being able to ad- admit a mistake. I mean, Ned has always said this is a business of making mistakes and the difference between the winners and the losers or the, the winners make small mistakes and losers make big mistakes and you know I it's 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 hard for me to admit that I'm wrong on things right that you know my my thesis is wrong uh, but if if you want to survive um, you know you that's just part of the business and you have to learn to overcome that and you know if you make a mistake you make a mistake you know even the best investors in the world make mistakes and once you come around to that view, um, you know, it, it success is, is easier to, to handle. Does it get easier to accept your mistakes? Uh, I think through experience and through practice, yes, it gets easier to admit it. Um, you become much more humble. And I think that's one thing that Ned has always said. Uh, you know, this is a it, this is a humbling business. And, um, you know, people with huge egos generally don't last long. And Ed, how about you? Uh, I think those are two two valuable lessons. I'll add a third, and that is to, to focus on risk management. Um, you know, you can have uh, great great ideas, great recommendations, uh, great trades, 
but if you're not careful, then um, then those are going to become an outsized part of your portfolio. And then when they turn, you're, you're, uh, you, uh, all your good work can be unwound in a, in a short period of time. So we've kind of alluded a little bit to what Ned Davis does, but perhaps not all of our listeners have heard of Ned Davis or aren't familiar with the research. How would you summarize what you all do here and, and who uses the research as well? I, I'd say we try to get on the right side of the major moves. And, and that's essentially what we try to uh, do by looking at data, history, indicators, um, and and then be able to assess that and uh, explain to clients sort of where we are in the risk uh, reward spectrum. How much really? How much risk is there in the market? Is it is it a, is it a low risk environment, which supports you know getting more aggressive in your uh, portfolio, or are we getting into more risky environment? And so that's I think the major uh, challenge. I mean, each of us sort of has a different area. I'm doing it from the standpoint of asset alloc- global asset allocation, um, but that's I think really the objective. I think, think that's what clients come to us for. Is uh, we'll, we'll accept small mistakes, but we want we don't want to make a big mistakes, and our clients. Trust us for that. We're not going to get them on the wrong side of a big, a big move. When I came in to, to work on the U.S. product, as, as Tim became more global, um, you know, one of the challenges of NDR from a perception basis is that we were very technical, even though we do have a respect for technical analysis, obviously. But we do a lot more than that. We'd like to say there's four different pillars. There's the macro uh, economic, there's a fundamental and valuations, um, and those two tell you how the market uh, should be acting, and over the long run, it does, but as Keynes was famous for saying, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, so you're going to look at the technicals and sentiment for market timing. But I think um, in the, the the perception in the marketplace was that we weren't as strong on fundamentals because we weren't saying, okay, stock XYZ is going to earn um, you know, X dollars per share next next year. So our target is Y. Um, so being a CFA, I've tried to build that part out um, while keeping in mind that's just one of the one of the four areas um, that we that we focus on. But you know, perhaps that's a good conversation starter for people who are less familiar with NDR um, to to look at that. And then um, as as market conditions uh, change, the technicals are very helpful, and everybody seems to seems to appreciate that um, during the you know while you're going through it. Even though they may they may say that the, the biggest part of what they do is fundamental analysis. When it comes to actually managing portfolios, they're a lot more technical than uh, than that. I think when we look at what Ned Davis Research does, first of all, we're an institutional investment research firm where we have a wide range of clients, but large asset managers, hedge funds, endowments, pensions, family offices, and and the like. Um, but I, I think what Ed was really describing is what we call a 360-degree approach to investing. We approach investing from multiple perspectives because not one branch of analysis is right all the time. And... One of the things that we like to do, everybody's trying to outperform their benchmarks, but one of the things we're trying to do is identify risks. And you know, for me, I'm trying to identify risks more down the road about where our allocation might be going, how things might change. So clients get a little bit of a heads up as to uh, where the potential risks and rewards are. 
So it, it's really to try to um, guide institutions um, and investment managers to, to have success over the long term. There's a couple of interesting ideas there about this the framework with four pillars and this 360-degree approach of trying to look at things from multiple angles that I want to ask you about a little bit more later on. But before we get to that, uh, we've, in the conversation so far, uh, Ned has come up a few times in terms of uh, the history of Ned Davis. Obviously, the firm is named after him. I believe Ned has nine rules on how to approach markets. I know a big part of what you and the firm do. Would you be able to tell us what these rules are? I know Tim started us off with one, which was don't fight the tape. Perhaps you can talk a little bit more about that and the other eight. Well, I'll talk about two of them, and then I'll maybe let you guys continue on with it. Um, The second one, which Joe kind of alluded to, was uh, beware of the crowded extremes, which is to understand if sentiment gets very one-sided. Um, then, you know, we have to start thinking contrarian. We don't act until the tape actually starts to move in, in the opposite direction. And that, but it's, it's more of a warning sign. It applies to sentiment indicators are useful for this as well as valuation indicators, which are essentially very long-term sentiment indicators. When things get uh, look extremely expensive, we have to wonder how much of the, um, you know, good news is already priced in. Um, the third is don't fight the Fed, uh, which is basically be on the right side of monetary policy. This was extremely important to us back in 2008, 2009, when we had what I would call a policy capitulation, when central banks around the world finally all got on the same page and started providing that necessary liquidity to start a secular bull market in stocks. And we're going to think about that in the future. If the secular bull market is going to be threatened, then we may very well start to see us, uh, you know, increasing evidence of tightening. So don't fight the Fed is is the third one. Um, and so maybe we have six more, so maybe I'll pass it on. Uh, the, the fourth one is to rely on objective indicators. And, uh, you know, nobody's going to come out and say, I'm not objective, I'm subjective. But um, I think we do that very well in that um, any argument or case that we're going to make, we're going to have a quantitative backing behind it. And we have our own software system that we've written internally because there was nothing on the street that could do what we, we wanted to do. And and so we can use that to look back at, at cases historically and to determine, um, you know, this is how the market usually acts when you're in this scenario. And then when you do that, not just on, on one thing like the Fed, but you do that based on where valuations are. You do that based on where sentiment is and where the, the market breadth is, is at the moment. You get that really good objective view. The fifth one is to is to be disciplined. Again, it sounds easy, but when you're in the middle of it, it's not. And that could be when sentiment gets extreme. Um, you know, when do you when do you start listening to that? Um, when your indicators tell you to. And uh, and on the other side, um, when things start to get better, do you try to jump in and catch a falling knife, or do you wait for the indicators to tell you that? the risk has, has uh, dissipated enough that it's time to get back in rather than try to be the hero and catch the bottom. You know, you wait for, um, you, you wait for the, the point when the risk is, um, is dissipated um, and you can catch the, you know, the big move. And the sixth one is, um, is again, related to that uh, practice uh, risk management. Um, and this really gets down to managing a, a, a portfolio, not letting... You know, make sure you're diversified. That can be from an asset allocation standpoint. 
Um, that can be for, for equities, whatever have you. Um, making sure that you have a disciplined approach to, to, to your portfolio. I'm glad that Tim kind of amended the first couple of rules about don't fight the tape. I mean, I, it's really about, you know, don't fight the momentum of the market and the, and the trends in the market. I, I'd be hard pressed to uh, know if a, a lot of, uh, of, of younger investors even know what we mean by the tape. <laughs> it's, it's kind of out of date concept. Uh, and, and Tim also mentioned, you know, the second rule about don't fight the Fed. And uh, again, I, I, I'm glad, you know, Tim talked about this. I, I consider it much more broadly now as, you know, don't fight central bank policy. Uh, and monetary conditions and uh, financial conditions. So I think I think those are those are important. I'll take the last three, and I actually I've added a, a tenth one for myself. But number seven would be remain flexible, and I, I think this is a really critical point because uh, you can really get ingrained to a view, um, and you hear it with a lot of strategists. They're, they're become known as perma bulls or perma bears, and that really doesn't help your clients. You got to know when to get off a trend and when the trend is changing and when something is being fully priced into the market. Um, so I think remaining flexible, you know, certainly from that standpoint of, you know, looking at the market and the environment and the data. But I think there's also another aspect to remaining flexible, and, and that's the fact that there are new ways of looking at things, new techniques, new data, and you have to be open to incorporating new data, new techniques into your modeling. And I think that's something that, again, we try to do here. We've incorporated new techniques over the years. I don't think any of us would have used Black Litterman or even knew what it was when we first walked in the door. But, you know, that's where the market went um, to be using uh, different types of data sets on volatility of volatility. You know, that's just something we wouldn't have started. I uh, wouldn't have incorporated back, you know, back when we started. So, there are, you know, quite quite a few things that are that are different. Uh, the money management rules. I mean, we talked about this earlier about being humble and flexible. You know, letting your profits run and, and cutting your losses short. I mean, this is all part of the money management rules. Uh, but one uh, that I like to look at that I think is is very relevant, um, where you can see this in practice quite a few times, particularly in on a, on a shorter term basis, is buy the rumor, sell the news. So, um, you know, people anticipate an event happening and when the event finally happens, it's all done. So we saw this pretty much um, in just give a more recent example. But when the, the tax uh, bill got passed in late 2017, uh, there was so much anticipation of that. And, you know, shortly thereafter, three or four weeks out after it was you know pretty much all priced in the market and done. And, and then the market kind of reversed after that. So. Um, you know, it's, it's important to sort of understand what is being priced into the market. And then the, the ninth one, which I think is also good, is, is you know, those who do not study history are con condemned to repeat its mistakes. Now, history doesn't repeat in exactly the same way. We like to say, you know, history rhymes, but at least it gives you an objective sounding board as to what the market has done given a certain set of circumstances. There may be conditions that are different that override it. But at least you have to understand what the historical 
percentages are, and, and, and that's important. I add on a tenth one, and, and I think um, it doesn't happen that frequently, but when it does, it can be really powerful. And that's, uh, it's kind of the corollary to rule number two, which is don't fight you know, the Fed or monetary policy. And, and my tenth one is don't fight fiscal policy. And when you have things like TARP coming in, where you literally stop a meltdown, uh, that was a significant event. Uh, so, so things like that, to me, I think is you know is important. Uh, you know, and we can even see this going back to the 1960s, going into the guns and butter program. There were there are times where fiscal policy has a significant influence in the markets. It's not something you can use every day uh, necessarily in your modeling, but when it happens, uh, it's usually worth paying attention to. There's a couple of interesting things I picked up on in your response, Joe, and I wanted to ask you about that belief around flexibility because one of the things I've always found a little bit challenging is for somebody who tries to think flexibly is that other people think you're being inconsistent because you've had a view on on a, a market or an asset class and now you're changing that view. And the natural reaction is sometimes, well, do you actually know what you're doing? Are you changing your mind all the time? How do you deal with that issue of remaining flexible but not appearing to your clients as being inconsistent? Yeah, I think it's a really good point, Dan, and it's, it's one that's not easy to deal with. But let me give you a couple of real-life examples. Um, so back in the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, again, I focus on fixed income, and I was looking at high yield, the high yield market. And so you have to look for extremes. And I remember writing in my publication that would you rather get 2% a year in treasuries or 2% a month in high yield. That's how much was being priced in. There was so much default risk being priced into the high yield market at that time that yes, I, I, I guess it could have always gotten worse, but you, you have to start saying at some point, you know, all those things that were being put in place in terms of what the Fed was doing and starting to buy securities and doing quantitative easing and what the, uh, what the government had been doing in terms of TARP, that these were going to start making a difference and that we had reached a, a sort of logical extreme on that. Um, and, and I think, you know, the beware of the crowd of extremes, yes, uh, you know, so you want to sort of think about going the other way. That to me was a, a, a time of thinking about going the other way. And then it's, it's not just so much to see, you know, the, the reversal of that extreme. Sometimes we use some sentiment indicators. But what's important is to start to see the reversal in trend, in price. So when those spreads start to come in, in the case of high yield, and those yields start to fall, then you're getting validation. And that's the real key. And then the second other example that I wanted to to bring up, uh, we had done a lot of work in housing in 2000s and getting quite cautious about the housing outlook in mid-2000, 2005, 2006, started getting more negative in 2007. Um, And a lot of people will say they called the housing market crash. And, and, you know, yeah, we, I, I like to think that we did too, but I'm actually more proud of getting back in in 2009 and 10 and, and, and not just staying permanently bearish on housing. And a lot of people stay permanently bearish. 
And you just have to see like when when housing starts drop to you know ridiculously low levels, and when we had you know housing investment running below uh, you know rates of of commercial real estate, and and that 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 gap was like the narrowest it had ever been in history. That's telling you that we're at an extreme, and that we need to start looking the other way. So a lot of people will say they call it the housing market. What they won't tell you is when they got back in, because some of them never got back in. And in response to your question, that it's really, uh, as a concept, it, it's the way NDR approaches indicators and data is that it's more of a transitional process. And I often say that um, the more confirmation you have from your indicators, and again, especially from this sort of 360 approach where you see it in your tape indicators, you see it in your monetary indicators, you see it in your economic indicators, and the more confirmation you have, the more conviction you can have, and the more conviction you have, the more decisive you can be in changing your position, changing your allocation. So there's a lot of times you get into these sort of transitional phases where um, you know we may be very bullish, and then we start to see the risks, the indicators start to look more mixed, things start to enter the picture, starts to raise flags. Uh, many times, um, it turns out it was some sort of a consolidation phase, and, and you relieve the sentiment, and then the market keeps on going on the upside, and then you can just sort of reassert your bullishness. Um, so it, it, it's, um, it, but I think that, that what that process does is that we don't end up, um, you know, to your point, you don't want to go from bullish to bearish and sort of being seen as being sort of, um, you know, overly responsive to the market or starting to appear um, maybe wishy-washy. Um, I think I think the point is that you want to, it gets back to sort of this catch the major moves uh, objective. And you can do that. Um, I often say, you know, if you're going to catch the major moves, you're going to not catch the absolute bottom. You're not going to catch the absolute top. But I'd rather leave um, a little bit on the table coming off the bottom. And I'd re- rather be a little bit late at the top but then make sure I get those big gains on the big uptrends and I'm avoiding those big losses on the downtrends. So I think that's why we ended up, you know, we tend to be in that sense um, a little bit little bit longer term. We tend to catch those major cycles. And, um, you know, so I think that's how we, I don't think are seen, my perception from clients is we're not seen as perma anything. We're seen as flexible. And, and that process, I think, allows us to... Uh, just to maintain that. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on one quick thing uh, because I just think I, I remember back into, you know, I was talking about 2008 in December with the high yield market. But what was going on at that time in Tim's world is Tim was starting to see some improvement from a number of sectors. And Tim actually increased his equity allocation in December because he was maximum underweight equities for quite a period of time from, I think, mid-2007 to late 2008. And so when I'm saying, oh, Tim is starting to see some evidence that things are bottoming out. And then I saw this extreme in my world of credit that gave me some more confidence that things are starting to incrementally get better. And I think that's a really important point is that we don't have to go all in or all out. You can move in increments, and that's okay because it's a probability game. It's not 
all in, all out. It's not 100% and zero. It's not black and white. Investing is never black and white. It's always shades of gray. And we're trying to align with the weight of the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence. When we're writing our research reports, we're, we're always setting up the next move. So we say, okay, now we're, all right, now I, I favor growth over value. But then, well, what are the things we're watching for, for that next transition? And then you monitor those. So when you do make that transition, uh, for those who are reading you on a regular basis or talking to you on a regular basis, it, it's, it's not a surprise. Um, it gets back to the approach, which is just have your objective indicators. And, and so if you're forward looking with those, then, then you, you shouldn't come off as, as wishy-washy. You know, we're not shock jocks here. We're not trying to, to, to you know, have the maximum effect of the, of, of the call. We're trying to have the maximum effect on our clients' portfolios. You're actively trying to identify the reasons that your view would change instead of just this, here's the view, but also, oh, here's the three, four, five, however many things we're looking at that would cause us to change. I think that that's a, a, a very important discipline in investing to look at the other side of the trade. And, you know, the other aspect of this is I try to understand the relationships between markets and how they're changing. And, you know, for example, right now I'm, I'm paying attention to what Joe is saying because I know that there's still a positive correlation between bond yields and stock prices. So I ask the question, what is the bond market telling us? So one of two things is going to happen. Either the correlation changes, in which case we're sort of back into another environment, um, you know, like we had back in the, uh, remember back in the, Back in the 80s and 90s, uh, and even before that, um, bond yields would go up and stocks would go down. Well, since then, you know, it's been the opposite. Bond yields go up, stocks go up with them. So, you know, right now it's relevant because if, if bonds, and, you know, we just had a discussion about this Monday, and I said, I'm paying attention to the bond market because uh, that will be a, you know, if Joe, if Joe starts to see, you know, signs of a bond yield uptrend getting going again, uh, I'm going to use that as a stock market indicator. In this case... Because you have that positive correlation, I would say it's a sign. Well, maybe the global economy, U.S. and global economies, are in fact, you know, starting to gain some traction, and therefore, maybe the stock market has been correct here about anticipating that earnings are come through, and that valuations are therefore justified, and that, you know, we're back into uh, an up cycle. So, you know, we we can use these different markets as indicators in our various areas. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's something to always understand. The relationships between markets because they evolve over time, and and you know from a secular standpoint, one of the I think longer term developments is you know nobody you know I'll defer to Joe on the inflation outlook as well because if we get back into an inflationary environment at some point in the future and we start to see inflation expectations pick up, I'd be paying attention to those correlations because the stock market may start then to start reacting a little bit differently to rising bond yields and and that would have a very negative impact on on you know the secular outlook because then you start to question relative valuations you start to question you know if this if uh we're back into an environment maybe similar to the late 60s and that sort of thing so i think it's really um another aspect of looking at the markets is really understand these these relationships and i, I do that by paying a lot of attention to correlations and you'll you'll see that in our in our service we have a lot of reports that kind of try to understand if they're Correlations are changing if they're stable. Some correlations are, sometimes there's no correlation. Sometimes, you know, things change over the short term, but then you look in the longer term isn't changing. So, um, you know, this is another aspect of looking at the markets. I think it was also interesting when Joe was talking about the study of history, because one of the things reading 
uh, Ned Davis's research that's always impressed me is this focus on publishing base rates for things. And I know when I was allocating assets at a pension fund, it was very hard to get good quality base rate information on you know, whether it's a particular factor or a particular indicator, sort of what it's what it's done over time and, and what to expect when things, uh, when that variable is is in a certain range. Has that always been a part of the process, this focus on base rates? And how do you, how do you use base rates? Looking at historical relationships and historical conditions has always been a focus uh, of NDR. Um, in fact, in the 1990s, we made a major push on uh, creating a bunch of studies of market history and looking at certain conditionalities. So, you know, on the monetary side, for example, what has happened to markets after the first Fed rate cut? And how has the performance of the markets been after that, looking out three, six, nine, 12 months later? So yield curve has been popular recently. You know, what's happened to the economy? What's happened to the markets? After the curve is inverted, what has happened? Uh, so, well, it depends on the, on the on the portion of the curve that you're you're you know you're looking at. But what you know, in, in looking at it in, in economic terms, uh, you know, it, it wasn't an infallible indicator. I mean, it did make a couple of mistakes. It's been good recently, but it's important to know that and provide an objective check on what the media is telling you, and. Sometimes you will read either in the media or other uh, people's analysis of uh, this relationship and you look at it and it's like, wow, it's worked great over the last two years or three years, or five years. And then you take it back 15 or 20 and it's like, this has no relationship at all. It's completely meaningless. It's just it's kind of like what Tim was talking about before. Their correlations change. And you have to understand why things are changing. And, and, and sometimes, you know, by understanding history and studying history, you can blow up some myths. And, and that's really what we were trying to do. And sometimes we are known as myth busters because, um, you know, we, we just blow up, you know, some common. What are the worst ones, so, do you think? So the, myths, worst, yeah. the worst myths. I, I think, you know, the, this one about the yield curve was, was, was really uh, one that I, I just haven't really taken a hold of um, because there were several, um, we had many recessions prior to 1960 that were not preceded by yield curve inversions. So the yield curve isn't the only thing that uh, you need to call a recession, although you listen to some people, you think that's all you need. And we've had false signals as well. We had false signal in 1966. We had a false signal in 1998. So it's not the be-all and end-all indicator. Uh, so that's, that's one. I'm sure there's a, a ton of other examples. I think a, a great example was in um, early 2008. And, yeah, we were already in a recession. We pointed out at the time we knew we were in a recession. And, uh, you know, then Bear Stearns went under. And it, was just, it had all the characteristics of a bottom. And people were looking at the Fed model at the time, you know, yeah. saying, wow, this is incredibly bullish. Look how cheap the market is. And again, the Fed model basically looks at relative valuation between bond yields and stock prices. And well, the thing about the Fed model is that um, 
it didn't go back to the 1930s. But what's happening in 2008, uh, the whole 07-09 period, was a period we hadn't seen since the 1930s. We hadn't had that kind of deflationary pressure. And the stock market, therefore, was not going to benefit. It didn't matter how low bond yields were going to go or how cheap the market got. It was going to require some sort of massive policy response, which we finally got in 2008, 2009, to turn things around and get the economic outlook improving again. So I think that was like a major example of why, if you rely on one indicator, you know, something that was widely touted, we don't hear about it much anymore. I haven't heard many people talking about the Fed model, but uh, I think that was a that was an example of how you have to be very careful about uh, making assumptions based on something that was developed over a limited time frame. And uh, the you know I remember at the time really the two indicators that really helped. In 2008, one was credit spreads, because we had the Moody's bond, bond yield to long-term bond yield spread, which had reached its highest levels since the early 1930s. And that gets back to what Joe was saying about credit. And then the other one was volatility. Market volatility had reached levels we had last seen in the 1930s. And uh, you know that was kind of a sentiment indicator, because you know again, you don't have a lot of data once you get back prior to the 1980s and 70s. And, but the one thing we do have is price data. So if you have price data, you can calculate uh, realized volatility. You can look at what we call NDR volatility index, 100-day change volatility. And um, you know, it, it, we got to let, you know, we'd never seen this. So these were kind of the, what you know, Joe said in late 2008, we were starting to see signs that this was like the 1930s again, and potentially, we, therefore, probably at some kind of extreme. So yeah, that was one example. Um, in addition to the yield curve, that I would say is you know is again a warning why we have to be a little careful about you know putting too much dependence on any one indicator. Yeah, I think the the other one that that I run into a lot, particularly with with newer clients, is the expectation that um, you know really good earnings growth is is bullish, and historically it hasn't been because by the time you get to good earnings growth, the market's already priced it in. Um, and uh, and so in a situation where you get, you know, say, you know, you're looking at earnings, say, oh, I got 25% earnings growth for the S&P over the last last year. Um, the market's really humming. The economy's doing great. Well, you know, then we start pricing in that slowdown. Um, and on the, on the opposite side, when earnings um, growth is pretty bad, um, you know, you know, minus 10% or so, that's when uh, the market is probably priced in a lot of the bad news and, and things get better. So, um, it, and so I think a lot of, a lot of times people say, well, I, I don't want to look at technicals because I really study fundamentals, but they're really looking at fundamentals technically. <laughs> they're the fund momentum of earnings rather than where, where earnings are, are going. Um, and so that's, a, that's another good one that, uh, in terms of myth busting. When you look at measures of long-term valuation for most asset classes, and I'll pick an example from equities, the cyclically adjusted P-E ratio. It's, it's been showing that the equity market has been expensive for a very long time. I think we're at levels where only the, the tech bubble had a higher CAPE ratio. And a lot of people have been negative on the market because of that saying at some point, at some point, at some point, what are they missing? Uh, is it just another example of over-reliance on a single indicator? Or? First and foremost is you don't want to focus on one indicator. But I, I like the concept of cyclically adjusted P-E ratio. But what, what it is is you're looking at an inflation-adjusted 10-year average of earnings and then looking at price currently. 
Well, if you go back over time in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, when when that indicator um, had a great track record, over a 10-year window, you could have two, maybe three recessions. So, so you're, you're going to pick up several cycles, which is why it's a cyclically adjusted PE. But now, what, Joe, we're, we're almost at a record high 10 years. So we're going to point in a few months where if we don't go into recession, we will have a full 10-year window of tape without a recession. And, uh, and so it's just not picking up what it was before. So we actually looked at about 25 different indicators, uh, valuation indicators, and said, which ones have done a good job consistently over time when you, say, look forward 5, 7, 10 years? And actually, earnings do better than, say, dividends, book value, things like that. But um, if you average out a forward and a trailing, um, you, you tend to do better than even even the CAPE. And the reason is, as we alluded to a little bit earlier, that um, analysts at, at the bottom of a recession, they're actually going to be bearish on earnings and they're not going to forecast the recovery. So the E is is looking really, really low. Um, and and so you so it, it's making the PE look artificially high. So uh, so a combination forward trailing usually works better than the cape. I remember earlier in our conversation, Ed, you mentioned the four pillars of NDR's research framework, and they were the the macro, the fundamental, the technical, and the sentiment. I was wondering if each of you can give me an example of how those uh, four pillars work together in in the areas that you look at. Um, perhaps we'll start with Tim. When you look at that four-pillar framework, uh, how do you see the world at the moment? Well, right now it's it's very interesting condition we're in. You know, let's start with technical. We've had this this rally over the last. It really went from January to March. The market right now, you know, so so you've got you've got a lot of the short-term indicators got very bullish. The longer-term indicators, and we spend a lot of time looking at breadth and looking at indicators based on two hundred days. Well, those have been more mixed. They have not broadly confirmed, especially when we look at things like percentage of markets um, with rising 200-day moving averages. Only about a third of markets around the world are actually back in uptrends. Um, the, we, have, we try to aggregate um, a lot of these indicators in what we call a rally watch report, which on average has gotten up to around 80%. Uh, aftermarket bottoms, it's backed off. It's now at 37%. So clearly the technicals had a had a nice push short term. Uh, I often think about 50-day indicators as sort of being a good measure of sentiment driving the market. Maybe the 200-day indicators may be more a good reflection of the uh, of the fundamentals or the fundamentals really confirming. I'd say at this point in time, we've had that, that sentiment push, but the fundamentals, I think the, the jury's still out on that. And right now we're sort of at a um, I look today. I'm going to feature a chart of the percentage of markets above their 10-day moving averages, which has actually been very divergent and is falling off again. So, I think what what's needed here technically is we need to have sort of a, a reassertion. Um, we have a, when we get these what we call breadth thrust indicators. Um, the one in our, we have five of them in our rally watch, and that buys you about three months. And some of those indicators have started to expire. So what that's telling us is we need to have another push here technically. So um, and then let's think about sentiment. So we had this run uh, burst of uh, performance to start the year, and it brought a lot of our sentiment indicators very quickly to excessive optimism. We have uh, a global sentiment composite, which is showing the most optimism over the whole history of the data going back to the 1970s. Uh, we're seeing this in uh, one of Ed's uh, indicators in the U.S. service, the crowd sentiment 
bull had gotten to its highest level since October. Uh, the market's gotten very concentrated. We've also gotten to about tw- more than 12%. Top 10 stocks account for more than 12% of the market cap in the all-country world index. So it's gotten very comp- concentrated and very narrow, um, lots of optimism. And so then the question becomes, uh, you know, if we then ask the question, well, you know, is, is actually this just a pause and actually the market has already correctly anticipated that um, earnings and economic growth are going to come through? Um, we have, you know, then we turn our attention to the economic data, which has started to look a little bit better, but it's probably a little bit too early to, to, to confirm that, in fact, we've bottomed and globally things are coming back. Um, and, you know, clearly we've had the Fed go on hold. I mean, I'll defer to Joe on the question of monetary policy. But, um, you know, have we had, uh, uh, you know, China has tried to get things so started again by, you know, they were sort of on this, um, uh, this had this movement to bring down their debt levels, but they've seemed to have backed off on that and starting to be a little bit more accommodative. Um, you know, will the Fed um, actually become more accommodative rather than just sort of pushing pushing things down the road and delaying their eventual accommodation? So, so that remains open. So, I think the the overall assessment is that um, I think uh, near term there seems to be a lot of risk. Longer term, maybe things are getting better, but I, I'd say I'd be a little cautious to commit new money to the market right now until we get some kind of correction that brings the sentiment down to more realistic levels. This is probably the biggest divergence, at least in the past eight years, between what what Tim's seen globally and what I'm seeing in, in the U.S. So when somebody says, well, what worries you? I, I say, well, what Tim's saying. Because he's he's not wrong. I mean, the the, the global technical picture um, is is not as as positive as as you'd like it to be um, a few months after a bottom. But the U.S. technical picture has improved uh, much more. Um, we did get very powerful breath thrust signals. In fact, December twenty sixth was a one hundred and eighty eight to one update. That is, if you take all the volume of stocks that went up on the day. And then you compare it to all the volume of stocks that were down in the day is 188 times more for the up stocks. And that is the highest in our database. It goes back to, to 1980. And if you compare that to NYSE data going back to the, the 30s, there were a couple times in the 30s um, that were higher, but that's it. Um, and then we got a couple more of those, in particular on January 4th. That was when we got the jobs report and, and Powell made a very clear pivot to being more dovish. Um, so you got very powerful breath thrust signals, and then you have gotten more confirmation on longer-term indicators. Big Mo tape, which is uh, really a, a breath indicator of sub-industries, I'll contrast it with what happened in 2015 and 16, where you got a, a decline into August of 15, China devalued, um, and then the, the market bounced, and Big Mo tape rebounded from the 40s into the 60s. 60s is a pretty good percentage of sub-industries and uptrends, but then it fizzled. And by the time we got into later in, in the end of 2015, it had completely rolled over. Beginning of 2016 was you know, one of the worst starts to, to the markets uh, in history. Uh, that f- big mo tape fell to a new low. And then off the February low, you got a much better rebound in big mo tape. It followed through uh, more soundly, got up into the 80s. And so what's happened since the December low 
um, in 2018 is that we have gotten Big Mo tape actually did get um, I think 79.9 so 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 much better than say what we had in that false rally in late 15 but I would say Tim is absolutely correct the sentiment indicators have shown some some optimism um, so the fact we've had you know a, a very strong move you know 20 percent in the S&P it wouldn't be surprising if you get a pause in fact usually even after breath thrust you do get a correction average around eight percent before now so we haven't gotten gotten that yet and so you want to see what it looks like um, once you get that pullback is it healthy um, do you have a you know a, you know very few divergences in terms of stocks making new lows or do you get you do you get a lot of expanding new lows the fundamental picture is one that has been talked about things can be a little bit different each cycle. The tax cuts really threw things off. The rest of the world in 2018 had a slowdown um, in earnings. The U.S. did not because of tax cuts. Now we're getting the slowdown, and it's a question of is this just the fact that year-to-year comparisons are too hard because, uh, because the tax cuts had such strong growth in 2018. If that's the case, we end up with you know low single-digit earnings growth uh, for for 2019. That should be fine. And historically, you know what the decline we got last year of about 20 percent in the S&P. That's about what you get when you get an earnings slowdown. If it's you know a more severe one um, and you actually have a severe earnings recession, it's a totally totally different ball game. But I think the biggest change. Um, this may be a chance to hand it over to Joe. Is the the Fed pivot. In, in early 2019, took the Fed from being fairly hawkish to being a, a big t- uh, tailwind for for the U.S. markets, and so you, you put that in balance. And again, we're looking at the weight of the evidence, but right now the U.S. stuff doesn't look that bad. I guess when I approach fixed income, I try to use a top-down framework. I try to start with the macro, what's going on in the economy what's going on in inflation. And clearly, when we looked at what was happening globally, we were in the middle of a global slowdown. Now, at some point, you know, the markets priced that in and the central banks react to the signs of weakness. Um, So what I then look for is Okay, so this is widely recognized when you have the IMF cutting their uh, economic forecasts. And, you know, it's pretty well known that the global economy is slowing down. Then you start looking for signs that it's going to be bottoming out or improving. And we started seeing a few of those signs and uh, some signs that stimulus from China was coming through. Uh, We're seeing some signs in the U.S. that the U.S. economy is uh, holding up relatively well. You know, retail sales seem to be coming back. Housing seems to be coming back. So uh, job market remains tight. Unemployment claims continue to make new lows. Uh, so there are a few things that you know, we need to look, look at now because we have to look forward. Uh, I think one of the changes that's happened over the years um, when we got started and Data was hard to come by, and the pervasiveness of powerful uh, computing power in in your hand or on your your desktop wasn't really there. You could look at rates of change, momentum. That's insufficient now. Now you have to look at the second derivatives, as people like to refer to it to, is the, the change of the change. 
you're really trying to anticipate, you know, how that momentum is beginning to change because that's what the market starts pricing in. So that's that's one area. Inflation has been, you know, quite subdued. Um, you know, I, I think there are some potential short-term risks around that, but I think the structural case for inflation being low is is pretty well intact, uh, and particularly outside the U.S. and in, in Europe and Japan, I think it's going to be a long, long time before uh, they can get inflation toward their two percent inflation targets. Uh, then, you know, we talk fundamentally. You talk about the central banks. You know, the Fed, as, as Ed mentioned was key among them in pivoting and basically going into a, a patient mode, a wait-and-see mode, and every major central bank is basically following the same playbook. Uh, the ECB basically is doing that, you know, actually trying to ease some conditions with some new Teltros. Obviously, the PBOC was easing monetary conditions. Bank of England's on hold. You know, the Bank of Canada's on hold. The RBA is on hold. I mean, it's, it's just pervasive that, uh, you know, if the, so if the central banks have your back, I mean, there's probably going to be a limited uh, amount of, of backup in yields and, until we start getting some clearer evidence. Uh, the valuations, however, are, you know, probably pretty fair. Uh, so I, I can't really say that, um, you know, the market hasn't really recognized this. So uh, we're, we're actually looking at things being in a trading range. Now, the technical picture uh, looks a little more interesting. So short term, um, you know, things have, have turned down a little bit. But over the intermediate to long term, uh, they're still quite favorable. So this is also sort of understanding what time horizon you're operating under. Uh, I think that really uh, determines, you know, your, your outlook. So. We try to gear for intermediate to longer term outlook here. We're not day traders, but um, you know, we have clients that are. So, you know, having an understanding or appreciation of where the market is, short, intermediate, and longer term, I think is is, is really important. Um, another thing that's been a little bit more on the positive side is the supply-demand balance in bonds. It really has been a shortage of high-quality uh, debt. Uh, you look in, in Europe, uh, you know, with Germany running budget surpluses, they certainly don't need to issue a, a, a lot of debt. And, and so there, there just isn't a lot of sort of riskless type of debt that's available for uh, for investors. So that's adding to a little bit better tone, technical tone in the market. And sentiment, uh, I would gauge it, you know, neutral. And then again, you can look at sentiment in a couple of different ways. The absolute level of sentiment, or relative sentiment. So things might be looking relatively extreme in terms of optimism, but you know, compared to full history, it might be just sort of in the middle of the road. Uh, so again, that sort of helps to understand, you know, what's your time frame? Are you a short-term trader or do you have a longer-term uh, view? So uh, understanding the context of these indicators, I think, can be helpful. So this isn't the most exciting time in the bond market because of what the central banks have done and the you know the behavior of bonds, um, you know over the last six months. And so you know neutral is not the most exciting thing in the world, but sometimes it's the right call. And <laughs> that might not be popular with the press, but um, you know we're really not interested in making a headline. We're interested in trying to keep clients on the right side of the of the market moves. And if it's Things aren't always clear. You know, being uh, taking a more neutral stance is is the appropriate one. 
I've noticed as we've been talking, this idea of trend keeps coming up in one form or another. Is trend or momentum just a fancy word for market timing? How is looking at trends different to, say, other forms of what people commonly associate with market timing, say, looking at chart patterns and things like that? Trend is really when we talk about, and I mentioned this earlier, about confirmation is that you know, some trends are stronger than others. I mean, Joe, Joe mentioned, you know, bonds are a neutral trend. You know, sometimes you get into these trading ranges. But trend is, is it's more about getting on the right side of the mood. Timing, I would say, is the, the, how timing comes into it is, is, is combining trend and sentiment. Is that sentiment tells you when you're vulnerable or you have the potential for a trend change. So you get, we often say you get ready for the trend change. And then you start to see your indicators start to roll over and then they start to confirm in the other direction. And then you can then you can have, uh, as I said, you know, the more confirmation you have, the more conviction you can have that the trend has changed. And so you start to see, well, then you look at your your indicators and you see, well, we had gotten to excessive optimism, excessive overvaluation. Then the trend started to we had divergences that typically happens at the top. We could be seeing this now. You see, start to see non-confirmations. Then you start to get things confirmed in the other direction. And then when you get that confirmation, you, you look back and say, well, we're confirming the other direction, having already reached an extreme in sentiment with the potential to go to that other extreme in sentiment. So to go from here, where you get the trend confirmation, to back down to the other extreme of sentiment, that's where you're going to have your major move. So that's how I would think about trend. It's really um, a word that encompasses participation across markets. Okay, one, one other difference is that I think people think of that and they may jump to chart reading. Um, I don't think anybody here has ever written about a descending triangle um, in the research reports. And, you know, Tim, Tim's pretty humble, but, um, you know, he may not tell you that he's a Charles Dow Award winner, um, which is the highest award in technical analysis, right? But it was basically, you know, illustrating that what he just talked about, um, which you know, which is which is different from what a lot of people think of. They think momentum, but yeah. So it's um it's it's much more objective than that. And I think that's that's where a lot of people really love NDR. It's taken something that had been somewhat subjective and and chart reading, technical analysis, and turning it into something much more quantifiable and objective. It's it's a really important concept. And let me give you a great example as to why you need to pay attention to the trend. So if you give any modeler, econometrician, you know, data, they can build you a darn good, if not perfect model of what's happened over the last two years or five years. The problem is when you get into a different situation. So you go into the post-financial crisis, we didn't have experience with QE. How are we supposed to model that? There isn't a good historical analog. So by analyzing the trend, you can capture what you can't explicitly model. And that becomes a catch-all for things that are going on in the market that you are either unaware of, don't have data to accurately capture, or just something new and different that you need to factor in to your thinking. And that, to me, 
is the benefit of trend. And that's why people who get hung up on certain indicators miss out that the market is no longer focusing on that indicator. It's now on something else. And the trend helps get you to where other people are thinking, even if it's not where the majority is. That's really interesting. I've never heard it described that way, but it, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. So I think back to a lot of the academic research on, let's call it market timing, says that it doesn't work, for example. And I'm, I'm going back to the uh, one of the very first papers, which I have a lot of problems with this from a research perspective, but you've got William Sharp's paper, The Likely Gains from Market Timing, where he I think the problem with this was kind of the way the question was structured. So he looked at it's January 1st and you have to decide whether you're 100% in the market or 100% out. I don't think anybody does that. You have to be right 80% of the time to break even trying to do that. So therefore, market timing doesn't work. Now, I know what you're trying to do here is very different in that, as we, we said, there's sort of this transitional aspect to it and, and moves are often gradual, but can market timing or trend analysis or tactical analysis, whatever you want to call it, can it work? And what does it need? What do you need to do to get it to work? I think that alludes to one of the challenges um, in the marketplace is that if a group says we're only going to make a change once a year, and that could be a a pension fund, it could be uh, an advisor sitting down with his or her clients, um, it, it, it does make it difficult. And but that's where our models come come into play. We say, well, right now we're we're bullish or bearish, but people say, well, when are you going to change? What's your time horizon? My time horizon is, well, on average, these moves tend to last nine to twelve months, but I'll change when the indicators tell me to, and that that could be in three months, and it could be in three years. But um, to to say I'm only going to look at it on this date once a year. Um, yeah, you, maybe you shouldn't be trying to market time that much because it is a, t- a tough gig. But if you remain flexible and disciplined and then when the information changes, you, you, you have a system in place where you can make those adjustments, then you can you can outperform. I think it also speaks to a topic I know Dan and I agree on, which is the value of asset allocation is that, you know, if you have, you know, just this year was an example. I mean, I've been overweight bonds and I've been underweight. Uh, equities. Well, what happened? Bond yields came down and the bond performance in March offset continued strength of equities. So it just shows you if you have a diversified portfolio, you know, asset classes, you'll get these offsets. And so you don't lose money that way. And again, it gets kind of back to this idea of, you know, your major big money's made on big moves and you want to. uh, So I think part of the of the issue here is, you know, when we talk about do you want to be in or out? If you're not in, where are you? You know, and there's other options, you know, commodities, gold, real estate, and whatever. But anyway, that would be one thing, to, one thing to keep in mind in addressing that question. The time period that that study was performed over can be really critical in assessing the value of making allocation shifts, or if you, you know, if you want to call it market timing, then do that. But the value in market timing or allocation shifts is a downside strategy. You avoid the big negatives on the downside. So it's hard to outperform buy and hold when the market's going straight up. The performance comes in when the market goes down. And when you're out, and it's interesting that you mentioned Bill Sharp. I mean, if you look at Sharp ratios, you will see a smoother 
uh, return stream because we don't have the downside that he's going to capture by saying there's no value in market timing. So when you look at risk-adjusted returns, I think you're going to end up with a better you know, stream and better results because we're cutting out the downside. And that is, a, I think, an important aspect of what we do. It's not just about the return. It's about the return relative to the risk that you're taking. So as Tim was talking about just a, a minute ago, you know, you're trying to capture the big part of the move. Well, if you're in equities and because equities are going up and then it, they start going down and then you switch into cash or gold or something else, you can be getting the returns from those assets and you miss the whole downside on the equities. So that gives you a much smoother return profile with a lot less risk. And at the end of the day, that's what most clients really care about. It's interesting. I was chatting with Tim when we were at the Ned Davis conference in Boston about a, a Ned Davis chart that shows the the 30-year, and I think similar chart even for the 20-year, returns for stocks and bonds that uh, I think was around about 2010. They, they converged. So what that tells me is if over the, the 20 years up to that period, you had and whatever your allocation was between stocks and bonds, buy and hold, you got largely to the same place. And I think there's a whole generation of investors and allocators that have kind of been conditioned for that environment that, uh, you know, whatever the mix of stocks and bonds, if you buy and hold, it'll be okay. But if you look at that, the, the relative uh, returns over those sorts of periods going back in history, convergence is the anomaly, it's not the norm. And so the question that, that everybody's got to think about is, you know, what happens if these asset classes start behaving differently again? And I know Tim talks a lot about the correlations. You know, what if you're not getting the correlation benefits between them that you've been accustomed to for the last 20 years? And yeah, there's, there's some, some big questions here that I think a lot of people need to think about. You know, starting in the early 1980s, we were in a secular bull in bonds and a secular bull in stocks, and you had an inverse correlation. So more often than not, bond yields are falling, stocks go up. Then we get to the 2000s, we get into the bubble, the deflationary worries. Bonds are still in a secular bull, equities are in a secular bear, the correlation flips. No longer are, you know, are people worried about rising yields. They see rising yields as a sign of growth, and they see falling yields as a sign of deflationary pressures. Signs of deflationary shows up, stocks go down. This continues until we get to 08, 09, and finally you get that policy capitulation. This reflation of the global economy gets started, and we still have this relationship of bond yields going up and stocks going up because the market cheers signs of inflation. We have inflation targets, as Joe mentioned. The markets want to see inflation. When they see it, they rally. Bond yields go up, stocks go up with it. You know, this has continued to define the environment, um, but at some point in time, what happens when yields finally, let's say the 10-year treasury finally breaks well above 3%, maybe it gets to 4%, 5%. At some point in time, if, if it is in fact driven by inflation expectations, my concern is that at some point in time, the stock market is going to start to see a negative side to rising inflation and interest rates and start to the environment starts to look a lot like the 60s again, 1970s, the stagflationary environment. Then you have a worry that if, if bond yields are breaking out, and Joe makes the call that we're in a secular bear in bonds. And if, if we're in a secular bear in bonds, bond yields are in a long-term uptrend. 
and you see that correlation invert again, then we have a real problem. Because then, unlike the 80s, when you're in a secular bull in stocks and secular bull in bonds, you're in a secular bear in bonds, and the inverse correlation persists, and that's the setup for a secular bear in stocks. So what do you do in that environment? Well, remember what happened in the 1970s. The place to go was gold and commodities in general, hard assets, real assets. Um, and, you know, it's an entirely different investing environment than anybody in this business really can remember. So I think that's a really good point is that we have to think about environments that we haven't even seen yet, but have existed in the past. And that's, again, goes back to why it really pays to look at long-term history, look at market history, look at relationships between markets, and think about the economic environment that was going on at the time. So, yeah, I, I think that you make a very good point. So Ned has actually written a book called Being Right or Making Money, and the, the title reminds me of uh, a quote that I read in another great book called What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars, where the author says, do you have a profit motive or a profit motive? As in, are you trying to tell the future or make money? And I think both phrases kind of get at this idea of managing our behavior of, as investors is really important because at the end of the day we're trying to make money but we all have this temptation this need to be right at times so how can investors train themselves to follow the evidence rather than personalize or internalize their investment decisions you know what are some things you found helpful in terms of trying to focus more on on being objective rather than being right I had a, a really good front seat in 2007, 2009. I was working with, with Tim at the time and watching him make that great call in 07 and making that great call again in 09 and Joe making that, when did you make that reset and the recession call in July of 09? July of 09. Yeah. And, and it turns out what June, June, June was the end. And then, and then a couple years later, um, I'm making, trying to you know make those, those same, uh, you know, making calls and, it is a lot harder um, when you're the one actually uh, with your your finger on the trigger. And you know, I'll tell you, we mentioned earlier uh, mistakes. And the first couple of, of times I made a call on growth or value, they, you know, I, I was wrong, and I, I had to go back and look. And what what am I doing wrong? And I was looking at the trend, but I was waiting for the trend to completely line up. And by the time I got in, then a lot of the move had had been made. And then I waited for the trend to roll over. And at that point, you'd you'd actually lost one on the other side. And so that's where the, the objective weight of the evidence evidence comes in, where you add on the sentiment, you add on the, the valuations and the macro. And and so, you know, you can you can make those those moves earlier than if than if just one of those things had, had lined up. So I think that's what it really comes down to is is making sure you have that objective discipline strategy in place for making decisions. And then when it come time, comes time to make the decision, it's it, it's already for it. Like I was um, reading a book um, on habits um, recently, and they talked about Michael Phelps and how did he win those eight gold medals. And the reason was he had this his daily routine at the Olympics had been set for months, if not over a year. Got up every morning, ate the same thing, listened to the same music on his headphones, exact same warm up. By the time he got behind the blocks, it was, it was done. Yeah, it was routine. And so, so when the markets are going crazy and you you don't you know you're trying to make heads and tails of it, go back to what you've already put in place and let the evidence present itself. 
and then you make the decision. And will it be right 100% of the time? Well, no, we're not, you know, not, there's only one Michael Phelps, right, <laughs> who's going to win all eight. But if you do that, you have a much better chance of, of being right over the long term. It's sort of implicit in the nine rules of research, but one thing that NDR has always, always steered away from doing is making forecasts. And we often say we forecast for fun. Ned's always said that. We, but we, we take the indicator seriously. Um, and, and there's a really, really good reason for not forecasting because – you know, and I'm always uncomfortable because clients are always asking us, you know, we put out our outlooks for next What's year. They want to know what, you know, they want to know where's the S&P going to be a year from now? You know, where's gold going to be? Whatever. But um, the point is, if you if you get in the habit of forecasting, which would be sort of, sort of some sort of the one of those bad habits that Michael Phelps, you know, would have not done. Um, but if you get in the habit of forecasting, if you have so much data at your disposal, so many indicators um, you can really support any case you want. And that what happens is you start, um, your brain starts to just so fixed on this idea that you're right, that you'll find support for your argument. And, and we have that, you know, that's a real danger with, with our product because we have so much information to go for. I mean, I could make a bullish, bearish case right now. I mean, I could say this market's going to, you know, quadruple by the end of the year or it's going to go into, a, it's going to crash and go into a major depression. So, uh, you know, that, that's why I think we really need to, you need to, to, to check yourself, your own expectations, and that helps you be flexible. Um, and, and the other thing about it is you don't want to, certainly don't want to start putting stuff in print that gets very decisive about where you think things are going, because then you have to go back and justify what you wrote about, and then you just start digging a hole for yourself. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the way we like to do it, as Ed mentioned earlier, you know, you sort of put out, this is what we're watching. You know, if this happens and this happens and this happens, we'll change the view and it kind of gives you a roadmap. So you can go from being here to being there and you don't get into this problem. I like to do both. I want to be right and make money. I don't want it to be an either or. But I, I, I again, I think Tim just mentioned it here and what, what Ed just said uh, earlier, what Ed had said earlier was really important. It's, it's kind of knowing when you're wrong when you go into a trade. You could be a trader and say, I've got a stop loss. If, if, regardless of what happens, I'm out. I mean, you have to know like what to look for to exit when you enter a trade. And that's really hard for a lot of people. It's like, what can go wrong that would cause me to bail on this position? And the other important thing is we do more of an inductive look, right? We're looking at the indicators and then trying to see how those bubble up rather than saying, I know because of this, that, and the other, this is how the market's going to behave. That can really get you into a trap. And, and that, again, that's the adherence to the discipline, adherence to the indicators, I think is, is important for keeping that open mind and keeping flexible. And that way you can adjust as the data changes and as the indicators change. In 87, uh, we had a conference, uh, and Ned was speaking at the conference, and he, he shows up with, for his presentation and had on a green tie, and he gave a very bullish presentation. And then Ned said... Um, Oh, oh, wait, I, I brought the wrong tie. He goes back, puts on a red tie, and gives a bearish presentation. And I thought that was a really classic way of sort of demonstrating how you can support any argument. Another theme that's come up a few times in our conversation has been this theme about the inevitability of mistakes. And that's something that I think a lot about because when I 
think about investing, I, I define investing as uh, decision-making in the face of uncertainty with incomplete information and the results of which sometimes you won't know for a very long time. And to me, mistakes are just naturally therefore part of the territory. So the whole idea of constructing a portfolio is ensuring that you survive your mistakes. And you talked a lot about how Ned is very open with the fact that he's going to make mistakes, you're going to make mistakes. Unfortunately, not everybody out there has such an understanding boss that is going to say, well, mistakes are going to be made. So how do the investors learn to get more comfortable with the mistakes and how do they come up with a, a research and investment process that allows their portfolio to survive those mistakes? We want to avoid the major moves on the downside. We don't want to make the big mistakes. I tolerate small mistakes, but not big ones. I think it's important to understand what is a mistake. <laughs> a mistake can be different things to different people. You know, if you're trading and you're, you're or if you're day trading, um, you know, you're not going to be able to catch every single move. And that's that's just, you know, you, you better be able to accept mistakes. Uh, you know, if you've got a long term time horizon, um, making a mistake could be catastrophic. So I think it, it helps to understand what a mistake is and whether you can be suited to take those kinds of mistakes. There are probably some people who should not be investing and can leave it to professionals because they don't have the mental tolerance. Right? It's, it's a big psychological game in some respects. Uh, and, and that's just not suited for everyone to do. And then I think, you know, mistakes come with the territory just like with anything else. Uh, you know, you get better usually, but I think in most cases you get better with experience and practice and doing it. And you see what works and what doesn't work. I mean, there were a lot of people who thought they were geniuses day, day trading tech stocks in 1999 and 2000. And, you know, and, and then you didn't hear about them <laughs> after that. So, you know, I think it's it, it's it's important to kind of know what your limitations are, what you're good at and what you're not good at. And, um, you know, just realize that there just maybe uh, take some time, maybe a runway before you uh, can gather enough experience and practice to be able to you know, put these things in, into place. And, and there are you know, there's also the size factor. If we're playing around with thousand dollar, you know, option trade or whatever, okay, you know, so we make a mistake. It's not maybe not that big a deal. You start applying that to a million dollar or two million dollar trades, and all of a sudden, like, whoa, I, you know, I better be right on this. You know, so that's another psychological hurdle that you know it's harder to get over, but you have to get through it through practice. And again, if you don't feel you're capable of doing that, then you you probably should rely on somebody else to do it for you. I keep hearing a lot from prominent investors. Uh, for example, there was a great interview with Stan Druckenmiller where there's, there's comments along the lines of, we've had all this unprecedented intervention in the market, whether it be by central banks. And then another comment that comes up a lot is the rise of algorithmic trading and the way that's impacted the market. And I know Ned has written extensively on buybacks and the role that they've played, particularly in the US. I'm just interested if, if I've given you three examples, there's probably others, but do you think these things have impacted the way your analysis works? 
because listening to Druckenmill, he was saying that a lot of the things he relied on don't seem to work so well anymore. Yeah, the, the problem is that you don't want to be too quick to dismiss what the indicators are telling you. Because I'm like, if I wanted to dismiss the breadth thrust indicators, I would say, well, it's all because algos, therefore it's going to miss the pulse signal. I don't know that. We know that there are changes in the in the industry that are going on. We know there's more of these quantitative programs and so on. We know that there's black pool, dark pools, where you know a lot of trading takes place. It doesn't have to be recorded. We know, um, you know, the ETF world has changed things dramatically, and the potential for you know when a, when there's redemptions of an ETF, they have to go and sell all the stocks or vice versa. People go in an ETF, they buy all the stocks. So what has this done with, you know, I think we can look at a few things, correlations across stocks. You know, I talk a lot about correlations. I think um, we can look at sort of how it shows up maybe in volatility, the fact that we've had very low levels of volatility. And But, um, you know, I think we have to be a little cautious about dismissing things. And I'll let, I'll let Ed talk about buybacks, but that certainly has been sort of an sort of an ongoing and you know, I don't think it's anything new when we think about it from a secular standpoint. We've had this whole buyback trend. We show have charts showing it's been a constant condition since the secular bull started ten years ago. So I, I wouldn't I, so I guess what I'm saying is I wouldn't be I think we need to understand these influences, but don't be too quick to say that they are distorting the indicators unless we have really solid evidence to say that because there have been cases historically. For example, short interest is something we used to use as a as a contrarian indicator. When there's a lot of short interest, that's usually a sign of excessive pessimism, and it's often a, a buy signal. Well, it turned out that you know started it started to become more structural. Short interest was no longer really as much of a sentiment indicator as just part of the market. So, so you know we started removing it from our models. Um, it just wasn't as useful, and and so. So I guess you know I, there is an element of these things start affecting. Which, how you're looking at things, but we also don't want to be too quick to use it to dismiss uh, indicators that currently exist. So, you know, an example of something that isn't is, is just different now. When it, when I got started, I would collect the odd lot data. So that is, you know, if 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 there was less than a hundred shares traded in a stock, um, that information was collected by the exchanges, and um, that was a sign of of kind of non-professional investing that it could be a sentiment indicator because uh, if you didn't have enough money to buy 100 shares um, then uh, then then maybe you weren't um, you weren't as astute so if there's a lot of odd lot trading that that could be optimism um, and in fact actually I would call Net, when I was at JC Bradford I'd call Ned up every day with the odd lot data and that's who I knew, knew Ned of as first the odd lot guy not knowing he was this <laughs> this great great mind um, in, in investing but um, now that doesn't matter because of ETFs you know they're, they're buying and selling all these different numbers of shares the odd lot data is 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 not important um, in, in that way uh, but as Tim mentioned with buybacks yeah it's it has been a, a, a growing influence. And there's a study recently showing that, you know, buybacks represented a, a huge percentage of buying um, over the last couple of years. But look, for every buyer, there's a seller. So if if they're if companies are buying back their own stock, by definition, somebody else is selling it to them, right? So so to say, oh, well, you know, um, all these people are selling. Well, yes and no. What's their what's their allocation? Well, they're still. They still have a healthy allocation into stocks. If you look at surveys of individual investors, their asset allocation into equities is still very high. So it's not like, you know, they're they're particularly bearish. I think it's kind of a static way to look at it. Um, but but it is important to constantly be evaluating 
the why behind some of these indicators to, to see, okay, is this still the same rationale um, that, that it was uh, before? Um, and uh, one more example was, um, you know, some of the interest rate indicators um, that we had built based on the 80s and 90s, because Tim had talked about the correlations, um, you know, they, they acted a little bit differently. So we've actually taken some of them out of, out of models. We still have them in there, but maybe not as, they're not as influential. You know, there was a, an analogy, uh, a saying that um, was popular, and I think Marty's Wag and then Ned used it, three steps of stumble, two tumbles, tumble, two tumbles and a jump. Uh, well, certainly in the 1990s, three steps and a stumble worked, but um, when we got to 2008, um, well, there was a tumble, and then there were two tumbles, and there were three tumbles and four tumbles, and I don't know, how many rate cuts did we end up getting at the end of it? And the market didn't jump. Until they uh, couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> they, they stopped tumbling. So, you know, it just isn't. So there's another example. I mean, I mentioned the Fed model earlier, but just is another example that we have to pay attention to indicators and some of these um, assumptions we've made in the past and see if they're still holding up. But when we go back to the concept, the concept still is, okay, are the central banks providing liquidity or not? <laughs> or are they cutting back on liquidity? And you know how we measure that may change. So the indicators that we may have relied on or used in the past may change. But the concept of liquidity and that improving liquidity is good for financial markets doesn't change. So I, again, that's that's a tough thing to go through. That's what we as analysts and strategists have to deal with: is that there's change in the environment, but what does that change really represent? And that's why you don't necessarily always want to get locked into the indicators. And that's why when we went through rules of research, they're really principles. Really, they're not like, look at this indicator and look at that indicator. It's like, no, don't fight the momentum or don't fight monetary policy. How we choose to measure that may change. But the concepts, the principles are still there. So I'd be interested to know what you're working on at the moment. Um, we've been doing, uh, what I've been doing really over the years is trying to um, develop reports where, you know, so that we can really see, we talk about breadth, and we want to see how broad various conditions are around the world. So we have the All Country World Index. All Country World Index is 54% U.S. Um, we want to understand if the U.S., driving the global trend and therefore are we seeing a lot of divergences or are we getting confirmation globally? So we've developed um, reports and we just introduced another one similar to something Ed had done. It looks at earnings expectations, consensus estimates, and then you can look at the correlation, the consensus estimates to the market and see, you know, does the market correlate with current consensus estimates, estimates for the next year? and. But more importantly, what I've done is develop, uh, we developed this report so we can see how consistent is the momentum of the estimates. We have another report that looks at earnings revisions, the percentage of companies that are being the earnings revisions. And what we want to see there, are we seeing breadth of, what we've been seeing is earnings downgrades around the world. You know, uh, is that changing? Are we seeing areas of the world where maybe, you know, maybe emerging markets starting to look better? Are we seeing sort of, um, you know, Alejandro talks about green shoots. Uh, you know, are we starting to see signs of that in the earnings data? Uh, forward, uh, we have a report that looks at trailing earnings compared to forward earnings. 
and you can compare the two, you know, to Ed's point, oftentimes, you know, our earnings, it's the trailing earnings coming down to such a point where maybe all the bad news is in, but the forward earnings are starting to stabilize. Now, that would be a good sign. We have reports that look at the median earnings yield of, of um, across sectors and markets, median component earnings yield. So it gives you breadth so you don't get this top-down number. You get a, a sense of what is the average stock earnings yield. And we can do that for, for the all-country world index and all the countries. Um, you know, I can go on, but, but we have developed a lot of these reports to kind of see how broad-based things are around the world. And that helps us understand, are we starting to see signs? Of, you know, I mean, that helped us last year because Asia was clearly the focal point of the slowdown early last year and it started to show up in a lot of these divergences. And we see it both in, in our internal indicators, but also in the fundamental indicators. And I rely on our global uh, macro work as well. When we started to see the PMI started to roll over, the recession probability models started rising. So, you know, again, it's part of this 360 approach. And I just think the more, uh, first of all, the more data we can look at, the better. The more global we can make the assessment, the better. See if we can identify where maybe things are starting to turn in a particular part. So that that's what I'm working on right now. How about you, Ed? Well, yeah, so one, one thing is buybacks, you know, what... Um, it, trying to quantify the, the impact um, and, and maybe do some myth busting out there um, on, on how influential uh, they, they are and what, and what they what they mean. Uh, in particular, there's been a lot of work on the so-called blackout period. It's not an official rule, but a lot of companies do um, suspend their buyback programs a few weeks before they report earnings. And historically, the market has, has, done, has done a little bit worse when there's been more companies in this blackout period. But last couple earnings season hasn't really been the case, um, so looking at the why there. Um, but probably the bigger project is this long-term view of growth versus value. Growth has been outperforming value for 12, almost 13 years, and that's by far the longest run on record. Um, historically, uh, value stocks outperformed growth stocks. You bought stocks that were cheap, you got rewarded for it. Um, why has that changed? Um, you know, probably has to do with a lot of economic conditions, but then. Yeah, is this going to go on forever? Most likely not. Um, and so, what sort of things are going to um, are going to lead us to believe that value stocks are going to outperform again? Um, probably would have to do with better economic conditions, a different Fed regime, um, um, and and different sectors um, outperforming. So, but but we're gonna um, we're gonna dive into that, and have a good report out in the next uh, next few months. And then the third thing is on, on dividends, um, because of the low interest rate environment, a lot of investors, uh, want dividends as a way to get income because, um, they can't get all of it from the bond market without taking on a lot of risk. Um, but as the fed is trying to normalize, um, what does that mean for dividend stocks? What kind of dividend stocks should you be invested in? Because again, most you know, people can't just say, I don't want dividend stocks. They need them. Um, so how do you how do you navigate that? So those are some of our areas. Always a lot of things working on, but uh, two I would say that are uh, you know more uh, front and center for me right now um, is cross asset volatility. Um, I don't think we really have done enough on vol and volatility, and there are you know newer indexes out there to allow us to capture this. And it's just a good way of sort of looking at the markets in a non-price, pure price way, but still see the result of price. <laughs> so it's just a little different way of, of, of looking at things. And the uh, second thing I'm, I'm 
been uh, trying to work on is creating our own financial conditions index. So there are others out there, but uh, it's going to be a little bit different than those. Uh, most of the ones that are out there want to show the relationship between financial conditions and economic results thereafter. And uh, I'm less interested in what the economy does. I'm more interested in what the markets are doing. Normally, to wrap up, I ask a guest if they have three tips that can help investors improve their dis- investment decision making. I have three guests, so maybe if I can get one suggestion from each of you, what are some things that could help investors with their decision making? The first thing to do is don't take the headlines seriously. If you do, you're going to get caught up in the sentiment and you're going to end up on the wrong side of a major move. For example, I would say one thing I've been noticing this year, there's a headline that says, progress on trade talks, market up. Three days later, trade talks stall, market down. Um, Yet it's nothing has happened. So it's really just about sentiment. Somebody says something about the trade that leads people to explain what the market's doing. Maybe it has absolutely nothing to do with the trade talks at all. So I would I would be very cautious about uh, follow you know paying, taking any headlines very seriously about why the market's doing what it's doing. You know those those nine rules of research are probably probably great ones to focus on. But um, I'd say just know your end game um, for for what you're trying to do with your with your investing. Um, you know I've got um, I've got college saving plans for my for my kids and. One of them's getting close, and so I need to think about my risk profile uh, for her um, for her college plan versus my other kids who are younger. It's different, um, so so keep keep that in mind when you're um, when you're when you're thinking about any any investment decisions you're making, so that you can um, you know you you can really meet your objective, and that's what we're doing here. We're trying to better our lives um, by getting ourselves in a better financial position. So so make sure you, you remember that. I think what's become really important is to look at both a variety of indicators. So we make sure we cover the landscape and we're not missing anything. And I also think it's important to listen to a variety of views. And you know, I think there are obviously are some people who are better than others. I don't you know want to go too far out and just, you know, always listen to a perma bull or perma bear just, just to get sort of the opposite take on things. But um, just to understand what might be going on in the markets that I may miss. And there are a lot of smart people out there giving interviews. Um, you know, there's access to this, to these information. Uh, you know, some of it's easier to access than others. And some of it's only geared for professionals and some of it's geared for retail. But, um, Understanding the various perspectives that people have and why they're coming up with their views is very helpful in constructing, you know, my own view or at least thinking through why I might be right or where I might be where I might be wrong. And um, and and once you have a broad understanding of the views and the indicators, uh, then you could be. Uh, more at peace with your own decision making. I'd really like to thank you all for the time that you've spent with me this morning here in in Florida going through 
what you do and your approach and your views to the markets. It's been great for me, and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it very much. Tim, Ed, Joe, thank you for joining us on the i3 Insights Podcast. Thank you for listening to the i3 Podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.